So today's message is titled Growing Peace by Uprooting Bitterness. And it's not always an easy topic to address, to think about uh, some of the difficulties that we all go, uh, go through. But what's wonderful about these verses is that it directs us to the heart of God, our good Heavenly Father, which is already even this morning in our worship. I was reminded at that now I've been here um, finishing up my third month, and it's a blessing to already feel part of the church family, to know that one of the ways God describes what it means to be Christians in a church is to be a part of God's family. So thank you for your kindness on that. But as we address the issue of having more peace in our life, which I would think all of us would agree as we look at our world, Maybe even think about our own lives. It's something that we would need more of. Mas pas. Instead of bitterness, and in this case, we're directed to see how this is presented to us in terms of gardening terms to help us think about what it means to grow peace in our lives and not allow bitterness to take root. This is something that Essentially, we would all understand. Maybe we have seen things grow or done some gardening, but just like with everything, it takes a little bit of experience, doesn't it, to understand more and more, as we'll see together this morning from God's Word. That God is the giver of life to create the beautiful world to grow and to flourish, including our own hearts and lives spiritually. But as I've been reflecting on that, I was reminded about one of the first experiences for me when it comes to gardening to learn a valuable lesson. Our neighbor across the street growing up uh, used to pay my older brother to mow their grass and pick some weeds in their flower beds. And when he got old enough to get another job, um, our neighbor asked me to do the same. And she was so kind and patient with me. The mowing, I didn't mind, but when it came to gardening, every time we'd get done, she would go, now, Zachary, let's look. Now, these were weeds, but all these over here that you just picked, those were my flowers. Leave those in, take the weeds. And no matter how many times she showed me, she would say, you're doing better, but you're still picking the wrong things. Not only that, just as you probably imagine too, you can't just go along and pull the tops of weeds. Why? What happens? They'll grow back because the, the roots are still down in there. And sometimes you can dig, 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 and some of those weeds are pretty stubborn. The same is true for our lives as well. As we take a look and pause to listen to God's word together, Hebrews chapter 12, 12 tells us how we can allow God to grow peace in our hearts and our lives and to avoid Bitterness. The first way we see that, particularly from verses 7 through 10, is that God helps us grow by not shaming us. God never shames. Instead, God shapes. Verse 7, particularly, says to endure hardship. Now, normally, when we see hardship happen in our life, suffering, struggles, we would think we don't want that, do we? God, I, I want this taken away. Would you stop? But in this case, God is pointing out that he's not causing it to make us feel bad. God is using it 
to help grow more and more peace. In fact, we're told the opposite, aren't we? If you don't see discipline in your life, that's not a good sign. We can see this from parenting as well. If parents don't discipline, what happens? Kids grow up to think that everything is about them, that there's no consequences. They're entitled, wanting it my way. Instead, loving parents, even as we see here with our earthly fathers. Discipline isn't to shame, but it's to help us, to shape us. In fact, we're told exactly why that's the case to help us to understand that discipline, maybe at first glance, and when we hear it, I don't know about you, but sometimes I think of discipline like growing up at, at school. Zachary, go to the corner. You've been a very bad, bad boy. Or you cannot go to recess. You have to stay inside and do your schoolwork. But the more we think about it, that word discipline also comes up in a lot of areas. At work, we need to live and work disciplined lives. Or how about sports? Whether you're a Tigres fan or a Rayados, right? You hope that your team is a disciplined team. I had a coach growing up playing soccer that would always say to us, you play, you practice how you play, meaning at practice you take it seriously because if you practice undisciplined, then you'll play undisciplined. The idea is that when we see this word discipline, we could probably replace it better with the word training. Or in this case, to shape us, to understand more of God's holiness. Verse 10 tells us that we cannot understand peace, we cannot understand discipline without God, knowing God's heart. In fact, that's why in John 15, Jesus uses this same gardening metaphor to describe our lives. In John 15, verses 1 through 5, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit apart from me. You can do nothing. So Jesus tells us that our lives are meant to be thought of like a plant. And we need to be looking for pruning or trimming and I'll be honest, even as I said, I enjoy seeing things grow, but I thought I knew what pruning was about. You just cut a few branches off here, but I thought to take a look at this to say, okay, well, what exactly is pruning all about? I found out there's much more than I initially had thought. See if there's any from this list that stand out to you as well. I read that pruning, trimming, is first to remove the, 
the dead parts of the plant. Okay, that one makes sense. But similarly, the next reason is to make sure the plant grows the right way. It could be growing the wrong way. So I hadn't really thought about that. Another reason for trimming and pruning is that the top part of the plant might be very healthy. And if you were to watch the gardener, he's trimming off the top and you say, wait, those are good parts of the plant. But the gardener would say, no, no, deep down, the plant needs sunlight. And the top part is shielding it from getting sunlight down to the flower. So you trim it for the flower to get sun. Another reason as a result is to make the plant more beautiful, to shape plants like you see out in gardens. And then finally, this is one that I hadn't considered, but it makes sense, doesn't it? That if you don't prune a tree, it can be dangerous because that tree limb might fall down and hurt someone or might fall on your neighbor's car. That would be terrible. Fall on their property. That would be expensive. So it's for safety's sake. The point Jesus is saying is that God doesn't just come along and trim things here and there. He's the master gardener. He's making sure our lives don't grow the wrong way. He knows how to do it without harming us. In fact, if you prune the wrong way, it could open up a plant from getting infected and diseased from bugs. But in John 15, Jesus also says, if you don't have fruit, you'll be cut off and thrown away. That isn't meant to scare us. If you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus, the, re- the reality is that you're going to become more fruitful to remain and be connected to Jesus by faith because of his grace. It means he's going to help us grow. However, the warning is if you do not see any fruit, you need to be connected and trust Jesus. Similar in Hebrews 12, if you don't see any pruning, that's a bad thing. If you don't see any discipline, we need to be connected and trust in God's plan for our life. But we can also make sure that we understand that God never shames. God is never the voice who's blaming us. Instead, God is changing our perspective to make sure that we know when hard times happen, we can trust that God is going to use it to produce more peace, more fruit, and more praise to his name. So maybe even right now, as you think about this, there's some areas in your life where you're seeing some difficulty. It's an opportunity this morning to keep trusting that God can use it to help our lives to be more fruitful. Or the times where we find, but praise be to God, where things are going well, friends, family are doing well, we can also know looking forward, we need to anticipate that things will come to try to distract us, to discourage us, and to shame us, but that is never God's voice. And that's why it's so important to encourage one another. When we're discouraged, to share that with someone for prayer, to look and ask how people are doing instead of the opposite. I'm sure we all know that feeling when 
You share a struggle you're going through only to hear from someone, oh, oh, that's what you're struggling with? Oh, just get over it. Or I can't believe you're struggling in that way. It discourages us, doesn't it? But how powerful is it when someone that you share something to says, thank you for telling me. I'll be praying for you. Or even when you share a struggle, they say, really, I'm struggling in that way too. Or I've been through times like that in my life. That's the opportunity we're given to see how God uses the difficult things to help shape us and to know more of his love. The next way in Hebrews chapter 12 that we're meant to see growth in our life is to recognize what peace looks like. God's peace does a few things. It restores and it strengthens. Verse 14 tells us to make every effort to live in peace and to be holy. There's that word again, to be like God. That's why God is needed. It takes effort, but we cannot do it alone. In other words, God's holiness defines everything. Meaning we don't define peace on our terms. We trust God to define what peace looks like. In fact, if you think about it, businesses have caught on to this, to promise more and more peace in your life. Good marketers know that they're not just selling products, they're selling the hope of security. Invest in this retirement plan so that when you're older, your whole life will be taken care of. Have this life insurance. You need this health insurance. Other areas to think is that we have police and military to keep our world protected and safe. But the problem with defining peace just this way is what happens when the police aren't able to arrive yet. What about those areas where there aren't military to keep us safe? What happens when the economy hits hard times? The value of currency loses its value. I had a friend who shared before he became a Christian, he had invested a lot of money in one of those plans. And it wasn't his fault at all. The company that he invested in was corrupt. They went bankrupt and they closed up. And he even tried to take legal action, but there was no company. His money was just gone, just like this. And he said it was one of the things that got him thinking about security in this world to look at the promise that Jesus provides. To say that you can't trust in any other source but the peace that God gives. That even in the worst of circumstances, God comforts, God helps. He provides healing as we rest in him. In fact, verses 12 and 13 in Hebrews 12 here, it's taken from Isaiah chapter 35. We won't read through this entire chapter, but I appreciated how this was given to, to hear the word of God, not just proclaim to his people Israel that we're going through a difficult time in their history, 
that they were exiled, kicked out of their land, wondering what to do with this, but God promised them peace. And ultimately pointing forward to the coming of Jesus that we can look forward to forever in heaven. The pictures were given in Isaiah 35 in verses 1 and 2. Describes a desert that's empty. That through God's presence blooms with joy. Verses 3 and 4, those are the verses that are quoted in Hebrews 12. That talks about how the weak are made strong having shaky hands and weak knees, like thinking about getting up in front of people to public speak, are no longer feeble. They're given courage by God's strength. And in verses 5 and 6, it says there's great rejoicing for the healing of the blind and the deaf, not just physically, but spiritually. No longer wondering what God is saying. knowing the wonderful freedom that only God gives. Verses 6 and 7, the picture we're given is similar to a desert that grows. In this case, it's the water that gives life to animals. It gives water for plants to grow. But particularly in verses 8 through 10, you see that word again, the way of holiness. God's way is not just some dirt path that's going to be rocky and bumpy and leads to nowhere. God's way is like a highway. It keeps us moving to navigate through so we don't have to feel hopeless or empty. God won't leave us stranded even when things come to disrupt our peace. God restores lives. And the way we do that practically is to make sure, even as we think about this, the moment we'll look at bitterness, it's so tempting to perhaps look around to other people, but in this case, it takes each of us to commit for this to be true in our lives. Romans 12, 16, and 18 says it very similarly. The command to live in harmony with one another, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on who? Everyone else? No. On me. On each of us, individually. And if everyone commits to this, makes it so much easier. Verse 17 says, be careful to do what is right to who? Some people? To everyone. In fact, practically that, what that means is if somebody points it out, if someone were to come to me and say, Zach, you are not being very peaceful. Instead of getting upset and defensive, it can be as simple as thinking, wait a minute, that's not their job to point it out. That's my job, to rely on God. God, help me to make sure that I'm living by your peace even when it's difficult, even when it's tough. 
As I was reflecting on that, I was reminded of hearing a heated conversation between two Christians that I respect greatly. They were fighting and angry. I was wondering what I was going to do. Are they going to get in, in a fight, in an actual physical fight? And in the middle of it, one of them said, wait a minute. Are we still friends? And immediately, I saw both of them just pause and settle down. And they say, of course, we can put the other things aside, but we can remember what's truly important. And Romans even tells us, as far as it depends on you, live at peace. Because the reality is, we can't control others, can we? But we can ask God to work on our hearts. And finally, verse 15 tells us a final way that we can see this growth in our lives as we rely on the peace that God gives. Verse 15 says, See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. There's grace mentioned here and there's bitterness. What we're meant to see is that both of those things are contagious. Meaning if we don't watch it, bitterness spreads. It can defile many. It can cause others to be bitter and discouraged. It can be like weeds in your garden that if you don't get them up by the root, they'll continue to grow. Well, how do we do that? In 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're told specifically what that can look like. In verse 14, it says, Keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Gangrene is a disease that spreads if it is not treated properly. When it comes to bitterness, and in this case we're pointed out, it's, it's empty words, godless chatter. Without God's help, it festers and boils up. In verse 14 there, it even says it has no value. And it can even ruin lives. That's why God tries to get our attention by using this strong medical term, gangrene, to show the urgency right now. We need to avoid believing false things. Instead, God's grace helps put it to an end. In fact, maybe you've heard this before, not the first to share it, but bitterness without God's grace, to hold on to bitterness towards someone else, it's like drinking poison, thinking it's going to hurt the other person. It doesn't work that way. Instead, you can let God uproot it so that regardless of what someone else has said or done, we can be at peace in our own hearts. That's why verse 14 
also says that we need constant reminding to keep listening to the Bible, to listen to the word of truth in contrast to the empty, godless things that were shared that only spread if we don't let God define our lives. So how do we do that? Well, bitterness is just a warning sign of a deeper issue. It shows a lack of faith, a lack of commitment to God. It can show itself up when you get upset, when you don't get your own way. Sadly, as I was praying through this, it should always shock us to see that sometimes people can even use the Bible. People can use faith as a smokescreen to hide their true intentions, to try to manipulate others instead of what? Living by grace. The good news is, even though bitterness is contagious, grace is greater. God's grace can spread not just in our own lives, but it can spread to others. Sometimes people think that it's by grace that you trust Jesus, and that's true, but grace is what fuels our lives. It's what changes our thinking. It's what reaches our hearts. Which is why in John chapter 1, a really simple verse points us to how great the grace is that Jesus came to give. Verses 14 through 16 says, And the word that is Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the one and the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. In verse 16, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And Espanol gets it right as well. Gracia sobre gracia. From the fullness of Jesus, in abundance, he gives grace, mercy, forgiveness that leads to more and more peace, not just in a limited supply, fully graciously. God's grace is given, and then more grace. Grace so grace, great, it says it twice. Grace upon grace. And then in 15, even as I was taking a look at this, we're mentioned here practically an individual who lived this out, John the Baptist, who was called by God right before the coming of Jesus to do a few different things. One, Baptist is in his church denomination. It's what he did. He baptized. But the word baptizo in the, in the Bible, it just means a, to wash, to cleanse. So we didn't know what to do with that word, so we just kept it as a way to celebrate, to honor what Jesus said to do, to not just feel sorry for our sins, but to realize we're completely cleansed, past, present, future to outwardly celebrate what inwardly God does through faith. But the other way that John gets our attention is that he surprised people, that at this time, right before Jesus came, crowds were coming out 
to come and hear what John was saying, to go in the water to be baptized. And yet even though John had a lot of people following him, he didn't hesitate for a moment to say, look, there's Jesus. Follow him. He outranks me. In chapter 3 of John, he even says, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. As great as people thought John was, John shows his greatness by pointing to the true greatness of Jesus, the grace that only Jesus gives and provides. But meanwhile, as we could probably imagine, John could have easily said, well, I had a great thing going on, didn't I? I had a lot of people that were coming to my study to talk about the Bible. Now suddenly they all left. If he didn't watch it, it could have become bitterness and resentment. Just like whenever we think about other people, why do they get all the praise? Don't I deserve to be recognized? John didn't hesitate for a moment to say this is why Jesus came, to change bitterness, to help us avoid that, to seek his forgiveness instead of demanding for our own treatment. The reality is bitterness can be contagious, but the good news is, so is God's grace. God loves us. No matter what we have done, if we turn to him to repent and ask to be forgiven, but he loves us enough not to leave us that way. In fact, if we go all the way back to the very start of this chapter, the first three verses, bring this to a conclusion to show us practically how we can do that. Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with endurance, with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The crowd of, uh, the crowd of witnesses, the cloud of witnesses described in verse 1 is to go back to last week in Hebrews 11 to encourage us to see all those who trusted God in faith, who dealt with jealousy and resentment and hardship, to help encourage us, to cheer us on, just like John the Baptist did, to say that Jesus has the highest rank. He helps us to throw off everything that hinders the shame, the oppression we might face. When we feel weak, heavy, and burdened, God helps us to address the areas of bitterness so they don't take root, to run with perseverance and endurance. Even when we feel weak, we fix our eyes on Jesus. The reality is sometimes we hear that phrase that, oh, just give it time. Time heals all wounds. There's some truth to that. But the reality is time is just time. What we really need is 
Jesus, the author and perfecter who gives joy, even looking at the cross, even going through the suffering of shame, he did it knowing that his loss is for our gain, and that he would be lifted up so that all who look to him would be saved as we live by the peace that only God gives, inviting him to shape us, to restore us, and to give us strength, all by his grace. Would you join me again in prayer as we commit this to the Lord this morning? Dear Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to know that you have not left us alone, that each and every one of us have said and done things that we are ashamed of, that we regret. But instead of having to feel guilty, instead of trying to feel like we need to fix our lives, you did it better by sending your one and only Son who gives peace. Peace in our own hearts, even when others make that difficult. And ultimately, peace with you forever. To know that we can trust you, O oh God, as our good Heavenly Father. Would you help us to see the ways that you're pruning our lives? Even though knowing it can be difficult at times, we recognize you're the master gardener. That you have a plan. That you promise good things. Not just now, but eternally as we look to you. God, we know again our, our sin deserved death. But thanks be to Jesus Christ who gives the gift of salvation. Father, even as we think about that, we continue to lift up those who are struggling in the world where there is a lack of peace. Would you continue to use this to draw people to look to you to know that here in this world, in this life, there will be trouble. Jesus said, you have overcome the world. We praise you. And we thank you as we fix our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of faith. It's in his name we pray. Amen and amen.